Michelle. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Better Words. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Yeah, good. I good. don't have many things exciting to tell you this week, which is probably okay because, like, honestly, this interview that we're about to to play is, like, my favourite thing we've ever done. That doesn't surprise me at all. (laughs) (laughs) I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I know what you mean, though, because, you know, like when you, you know, on Monday morning, you go back into work and everyone says, oh, what did you do this weekend? And everyone's, like, trading stories. I did nothing. The most exciting thing that happened this weekend is that the kettle broke on Friday, so there was no cups of tea on Friday evening and night. Outrageous. Or, and then on Saturday morning, Monica boiled water like in a saucepan. (laughs) (laughs) And then at about 11, I went to Kmart and bought a new kettle. I'm so glad you didn't resort to like what I've heard Americans do, which is put their water in the microwave. I mean... I don't even know how long that would take because, like, you can't boil water in the microwave. Like, I'm sure you can, but, like, how long does it take? Disgusting. Yuck. It's just Mm. like, no. Anyway. So, So, no, I didn't. New kettle for crisis averted. Exactly. (laughs) Cups of tea for everyone. (laughs) I'm drinking, like, ten cups of tea a day. It is ridiculous. (laughs) I mean, that's just like a normal day. Love tea. I mean, it is, yes. I was drinking that much when I was in an office too because, you know, tea break. Um, There's a weird thing that British people do though, which is if you work in an office, which thankfully I don't, um, if one person makes tea, they like make tea for everybody and you have to make it the way they like it and stuff. Like what's that madness? Not in an office. No, in an office, make it yourself. Like, if you're, like, at home, you know, oh, yeah. oh, do you want a if cup of tea? Home, like, I know. one other person, but like, I made to cups know of tea for, like, my whole family. Yeah, but they're your family. Like, you know how they like it. And also, yeah, you, you I, can probably, yeah, you're not, I just don't, what, how? Yeah, I, everyone in the office is a bit much. It's like 20 I people. I don't know what, yeah. It's ridiculous. More. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. At Jack's work, they have um, a tray for the apprentice to go get everyone's teas, and it has tea bitch written on it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome! I, love I know. That. And I was like, yeah, it is funny because it's the apprentice and ha ha ha. Yeah. But then also, like, it legit is a thing. I asked the girls at co-working club yesterday. It literally is like a tea rotor is a thing in offices, and people have like, this is how I like my tea, and they have like you meant to know how everyone likes their tea and you know that that's tea. I wow. know. I was like, how? What? That's so ridiculous. It's madness. Because, yeah. I mean, Absolute like, I'm madness. an assistant. I've done coffee runs. I've had to go with other people when they're doing coffee runs because you can't hold seven coffees. Mm. But that's, like, to a coffee but shop. You're not like in someone. The yeah, you can write down your orders. <laughs> I mean, we used to do coffee, coffee. I think coffee runs are obviously the Australian equivalent, but in that you just go, like we would just go around the office with a post-it and be like, what do you want? And yeah. Then, and then go and order all those things and then bring them back. You're not making them. Like, I'm not your barista. Gosh. Yeah. I just was amazed and I was like, well, thank God I don't work in an office. You know what I don't miss? I mean, I miss having a stable income, but I do not miss the petty office politics. whose lunch got stolen this time who took my cutlery all that sort of stuff my gosh I do not miss that at all (laughs) you know what else is fun about being self-employed tell me I can watch younger on my lunch break (laughs) (laughs) which is what I I have been doing yeah I yeah um but anyway that's all like literally since we spoke I'd only just started younger when we spoke. I think I was maybe still in season one. Um, Mm -hmm. I have just started. I'm in the first episode of season five now. I love it. (gasps) I'm in that that phase of watching a show where, like, you don't want to watch anything else. 
like this is all I think about and all I want to watch when I'm like, mm, what am I going to watch tonight? Like this is it. Like silly, no question. It's exactly. I've even oh, been like that. Jack, we're watching Younger and he's actually not got not gotten into it enough to like want to watch it with me. Like, but he'll keep up with me like, oh, what's happening now? Oh, what's ha-? And I have been like, so this is Diana and this is Charles and this is, so I've just explained a little bit as I've been watching it. And he's a little bit like, Ooh, has she told anyone yet? Ooh, ooh, like <laughs> catching up on things. How much so, do you love Diana? I, I love Diana. I hated her at first because, like, of course you and, did. But... Yeah, and like season one really is about is about the whole secret, and it's about Liza. But I love yeah. that by season five, it's really like an ensemble show, and it I'm is. So isn't glad it? that can I? I don't want to spoil it, but I'm so glad that when certain characters break up um then they're not like out of the show they become like a little character in their own right and get their own little story arc as well I'm really really glad about that yeah because it's not I think by now five seasons you'd be like oh my god like I'm so sick of Liza because she can be a little bit much but the fact that it's everyone's problems and everyone's relationships and yes more Diana yeah it's Excellent. Yeah. It's all I want to watch. It's so much fun. I'm just sad that so I'm going to London today, just casually. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going for the day to go to a book event. Um, and I'm just sad that like Younger isn't on Netflix. So I can't like download to watch on the train because I totally would if I could. <laughs> yeah. So I'm up to, I'm actually just starting episode two. But once we finish speaking, I've got to go get ready for my big day out in London. <gasps> yeah. Yay. Yay. <laughs> which um, also, which also, sorry, it also ties in with um, what I've been reading because all I've been reading have been the books that were shortlisted for the book award that I'm going to tonight. So I've been reading lots and lots of middle grade books, some really wonderful books, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing who wins. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. you'll have to tell us a bit more about it next time. Yeah, um, and I've got videos and stuff going up on my channel, so, yeah. Sweet. Mm. Yeah. Um, Just a side note, another show we both love. I read some BuzzFeed article, like, last week or the week before with, the ha- with Halloween about, like, oh, funny details you didn't notice in – the Halloween heist episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <gasps> and I just read this, like, BuzzFeed listicle and was like, I want to watch it again. So I just started <laughs> watching it again. Yes. I've been watching so it I'm, again slowly from, like, since we moved here because it's comfort. Yeah. See, I intended slow, but, like, whenever I start a TV show, I – particularly sitcoms because the sitcom formula is usually that like oh the so main easy. couple of the show gets <laughs> together in season two or at like the end of season two so I intended slow but of course I watched two episodes and I'm like but Jake and Amy and I'm just like <laughs> trying to race through to when they get together which it, at that point I will then I always want to slow down but I never can I know it's a terrible hard. <laughs> so at the moment we're watching like I've, I'm watching like season three or something slowly on my normal Netflix and then when we log into like Canadian Netflix with our VPN it's so we can watch keep watching season six so I'm watching them both like in tandem and it's not confusing uh-huh. it's not it's not confusing because it's just such a great show and I'm like I know where we're up to, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's funny that like I'm kind of rewatching and still watching the new episodes at the same time because we haven't finished season six yet. So yeah, it's such a good show. It really is. Anyway, um, and the other thing that I've been reading um, is over the weekend I read Beautiful Mess by Claire Christian, which I bought with you in a secondhand bookshop in Brisbane yeah. like a year and a half ago. It was such a fun day. Like oh. Yeah, that trip was ridiculous. We bought like 12 books <laughs> each. <laughs> so unnecessary. Oh, um, my but God. But so fun. 
yeah, yeah, it was so much fun. That's when we went to Brisbane Writers Festival, interviewed Veronica Roth. And... Was it? Was it that trip? Yeah. Because I was thinking about this. Was it that oh, trip no. that we did all the book shopping or was it the Ariana Grande trip? <gasps> it was the Ariana Grande trip. Oh, yeah, which was, was actually years ago. I mean, yeah, the year before. Yeah. yeah. <gasps> oh, my God. Yeah, it was two years ago. It wasn't a year ago. Holy yep. shit, that went fast. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm getting all my reminders for, like, my first trip to the UK two years ago. Like, I was getting – I've been getting all those reminders this week or, like, the last few oh. weeks because it's, like, Ooh. exactly two years since – um, like I was exploring in London and stuff, so it's kind of cute that I'm going back again today. So yeah, <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, cool. yeah. Anyway, oh. so yes, beautiful mess. Actually, weird note from last week, I guess. Beautiful mess won the 2016, I think, text prize, which I oh. didn't really register until I picked it up again right after we'd just spoken to Nina. So. Yeah, but oh my god, it is stunning. I like, have no doubt because I know the quality of the text prize winners. I don't know how I missed that one. Yeah, I, I, you would really like this. Like, you would really like the novel. It's so beautiful, and it's funny. I don't know. I think I started it, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna enjoy this, and like, it's gonna be, you know, like a cute YA contemporary and then it just like somewhere like a quarter in or something it just like stepped up for me and I was like this is amazing I loved it and fun little note I put this photo on Instagram and turns out they're making a movie I think I'll have to I'll have to double check this and fact check myself but Claire commented on my photo and said that she has written the screenplay. (gasps) That's so cool. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She did. She said, yes, she's currently writing the screenplay. That is so cool. So, I mean, if a screenplay is being written, I'm hoping a movie or a TV show or something on screen is being made. Absolutely. Not, hopefully not too distant future. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. And I just love, like, the fact that it's happening to a Aussie YA book as well. Like, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yay. So yay. very exciting. Um, yeah, so if by chance um, I'm not the only one and you're not the only one, Michelle, who happened to miss Beautiful Mess um, in 2016, highly recommend yeah, perfect. Okay. Well, <laughs> enough chitter-chatter. Should we just get on with this amazing interview? Yes. I mean, who's really here for us anyway? They're here yeah, for no one. Our Everyone amazing has guests. skipped. Everyone has yeah. skipped ahead to listen to Breely. Yeah, <laughs> skippers, come back in now. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, enjoy. Today we're delighted to speak to someone who is an absolute inspiration for me and we don't say that lightly. Our guest is a lawyer and a critically acclaimed writer whose debut memoir won multiple awards and, you know, was only blurbed by some of the most amazing Australian writers. She's campaigned tirelessly for social and legal changes and is an advocate for victims of sexual assault. Her second book has just been released. And she's also studying a master's in creative writing and working on a fiction project. We're absolutely honoured to welcome Breely to Better Words. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hi. <laughs> I am a big fan, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah, just in case you can't tell from that intro. To you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's lovely to be. It's lovely to be to be fanned over the privilege. Still very <laughs> surreal. Also, it is also nice to hear, like, another Queensland accent as well. <laughs> <laughs> What's a Queensland accent? Like well, a... well, I, don't think, I don't think that we have one, but then I listen to you and I'm like, mm, I feel like 
yes, you're, you're definitely from Brisbane. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, I guess, being away from it makes me realise it more. But, yeah. <laughs> I definitely, when I get into cabs in Sydney and Melbourne, people, cabbies ask me where I'm from and then they look at me and then they just say, Brisbane. And I thought that happened because I, in Melbourne I wear colourful things and in Sydney I'm just not very, I don't know, corporate or chic. But maybe yeah. it's the accent. Who knows? Well, I, I, know. I didn't think we have one, but I've been told by many people that I do. So, <laughs> yeah. hmm. who knows? I I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I have no Caitlin, answers. Have you had that in Sydney yet? Um, I don't know. I don't think I have, actually, surprisingly. <laughs> um, so, before we anyway. get into our proper discussion... Um, we just want to flag to listeners that uh, we will be talking about Bree's books, and that means that we will also be discussing. Oh, sorry, we'll also be discussing things that may be triggering, including sexual assault and eating disorders. So, just bear that in mind if you're listening. Let's get started with the interview. So, let's start with your brand new, just released book, Beauty. So, firstly, congratulations on the release. Um, beauty is every bit as raw as eggshell skull in terms of the personal insights that you share um, about your relationship with your own body. Um, but you recently wrote on Instagram that you're a happier person for having researched the book and having written it. So how did writing the book and the publishing process change your relationship with your body and beauty? Um, I think there are a lot of similarities with between beauty and eggshell skull in terms of being willing to th think and speak about issues and to be able to name them and therefore find better language and understanding for them um, definitely for me personally is a huge part of the sort of process I find beneficial to sort of go through to try and move on from the issues. So with beauty in particular, um, I actually just didn't realise how fucked my sort of thoughts and feelings about my own body were until I had finished the first draft of the manuscript of Eggshell Skull and realised that this disordered eating um, and weird behaviour was really in every single chapter. Um, and then I really took that stuff out and I put it back in and I took it out and I put it back in again um, because it's pretty – I at the time I just remember feeling like maybe it wasn't relevant and definitely it was just sort of embarrassing. Um, and at the end of the day I put it back in because I think that Eggshell Skull certainly is a book about worth, about what we each think we are worth and about why some people think they are worth more than others. Um, and how we feel about ourselves and how we judge our bodies and how other people judge our bodies is a huge um, factor in considering that. And then the reader response to Eggshell Skull, um, a lot of, I got a lot of correspondence specifically on that kind of body content. Um, and so then I just decided that it was something that I should, well, not that I should, but just that I wanted to actually um, – sort of dive into because I had never had any reason to take the time or space to actually um, decide for myself what I thought and felt about the issues. Um, and as soon as I started sort of turning around and confronting those problems, um, things just started getting a lot clearer for me and I was able to find language and theories and terminology that just totally fit my experience and helped me understand my struggle. Yeah, well, I think that this book is something that so many people are going to relate to because of that. Um, and it, it does make me wonder that, and, and I remember seeing you speak at Brisbane Writers Festival and talk about the editing dilemma of whether to leave the, the disordered thinking in eggshell skull or not. Um, and the fact that you'd written the book and sort of not even realised during that process, you know, you just poured it out onto the page, really makes me wonder then, like, how embedded are these beliefs and 
you know, how hard is it for, for us to actually start to combat them when essentially we've just grown up this way sometimes? Yeah, I think there's a huge analogy there again, to be honest, with um, sex crimes where mm-hmm. I've just been present to so many conversations. I had so many conversations relayed to me where it hasn't been until after the Me Too movement that a lot of people, mostly women, um, realise that things that have uh, have been done to them in the past have actually been um, sex crimes because we're just – it's there are so many things about our existence that mean that often it's – we just sort of feel like it's easier to keep our heads down and sort of just keep trucking along um, because the tax for us – in speaking out and trying to deal with this shit sometimes is just so high. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. It's just so awful because I think just to continue on this a little bit, like, you know, I think especially now there is so much discussion around, you know, body positivity and like all of these things. And I would think a lot of people would say, no, Like, I love my body, I love myself and everything, but even still, like, I try and think that as best I can, but even still, definitely multiple times a day, it's like, ugh, there's, like, an ugh moment about something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much of the, um, something I'm really interested in is, like, the Gia Tolentino essay where she talks about, it's called Always Optimising. Um, And something that I think beauty goes into a lot is how we can mix up ideas of like motivation and um, striving and, you know, always, you know, you only have to beat the person you were yesterday. All all that stuff is so easily co-opted into ideas of, of physical, like presentational perfection as well. Mm, Absolutely. And more and more in our, in our working life as well like I feel like the more that we talk about this I feel like I'm surrounded by it and I didn't it wasn't until I started and this is probably the same for you but it wasn't until I started thinking about my own relationship with my body because I saw people talking about body positivity and stuff like that that I started to notice more and more people around me who were maybe saying things that I think oh that's not why would you say that about yourself or you know where I I would suddenly think, wow, that's really, that is really fucked up. Why, why would you say that? Um, and it is just so ingrained in our daily language, in our expectations of, you know, even the way that men and women should present. Um, I mean, Caitlin and I were talking about this yesterday with regards to Sean Mendes because the um, Shameless podcast did a wonderful segment on him and they were talking about um, the the rumours about his sexuality and we were talking about how crazy it is that in this day and age we're still getting things on the internet like, oh, he crossed his legs this way, you know, maybe that means that he's gay. It all sort of plays into this idea of presenting the perfect exterior, the perfect physical exterior. Right, absolutely. And I think something that I'm really interested in as well is that it's pretty much 10 years, like a decade, since smartphones really truly started taking off. And the effect, and the reason I talk about smartphones rather than just talking about sort of quote marks social media um, is because social media, the combination, what a smartphone means is the combination of a camera and the internet. And something that we've never like people have just never had to grapple with before now was the fact that we are being photographed every single day and being presented with photographs of ourselves and photographs of other people every single day. And in the past, it used to be that people would really um, do a lot of what I now describe as body work, you know, like they, I don't know, um, get fit in the lead up to a wedding and then they like shave mm-hmm. for that wedding and they buy a particular outfit for that wedding. They get their hair and makeup done for that wedding, everything, because that is the occasion on which they will be photographed. And there is a lot of anxiety in the lead up to that, but it's sort of focused. And then there's a sense that one can move on from that time of intense surveillance. Whereas that's every day now. 
Um, and I think that that's a huge contributing factor to this sort of gradual creep upwards in terms of like minimum expected standards. And that's the stuff that I think is really uh, insidious and much harder to call out. Mm, absolutely, absolutely, especially, right. especially everything for, that I've yeah. oh, sorry, Michelle. <laughs> everything no. that I've ever heard about how social media and Instagram and everything is having this negative effect on body positivity and how we feel about ourselves and what we think of ourselves. I've never heard it explained so well. <laughs> what you just said is like perfect. That's why. It's because it's all the time now. Yeah, and I also just try to avoid, like, ugh, I don't <laughs> think that social media or the internet is a thing that sort of sits outside ourselves anymore that we can point to and critique. From where I'm sitting, it looks very much like our internet lives and our corporeal lives are inextricably enmeshed. And I don't think it's even particularly useful often to try and point to um, social media unless you're very sort of careful about what you are critiquing as like the source of a problem or, or the explanation for a problem. Um, because it's not, it doesn't sit apart from us. Like we are it, we created it. And then it like the, the applications know how to make us want them. It's just this ongoing feedback loop. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my God. We could keep talking about this forever. Um, <laughs> Um, beauty um, with all of those wonderful discussions, um, beauty is partly a reflection on what was happening as your first book, Eggshell Skull was released and how you were with that gaining a bit of following and more of a public profile. Um, did you ever imagine that a book on body image could grow from the publication of your memoir? Um, I didn't. I don't know. It doesn't really. I don't know that I does not even an answer jump, that. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, then, but then I, I think, well, maybe it was because it was content that I was clearly grappling with whether or not to include mm. in the first book. So I think it would be disingenuous to say that I had never sort of thought about, thought that I would write about these types of issues. Um, and I feel like even, like, Beauty comes out this year, hopefully the sister essay, Brains, will come out next year. And even that, like, for ages I ran the indie magazine, Hot Chicks with Big Brains, it was all about the intersection between women's sort of work intelligence and how they sort of are pressured to present themselves in the world. I think these are, like, sort of all interconnected themes. And in my head it's almost like all of these issues of power and establishment and punching up are all one big book that's just like constantly like one big sort of pianola reel of a personal essay running in my mind and I just sort of float <laughs> over to one specific topic after another that that my publisher thinks they can market I don't know it's um yeah it's like hard. just different you... volumes of you yeah, basically. Um, and when you do life writing, mm, well, I'll speak for myself, because I write, um, I hope I write books that use my experience as a lens through which to discuss broader ideas. And therefore, there is writing from my life in the books. Um, you pick up fragments from all over your life. Um yeah, I don't know. It just it feels too organic for me to feel like I can properly answer that question. Sorry. <laughs> what a ramble. No, that's all right. You, you still okay. did answer it. <laughs> I think it almost feels funny calling Eggshell Skull a memoir because it feels like so much more than that because, as you say, you use your experience to discuss something so broad and something which affects so many women and men too, so many people, um, I think that's probably maybe where its success lies as well in that you you do take the issue more than just your personal experience and you apply it to so many. And I think that's also where, um, to talk specifically about Eggshell Skull, that's where your experience in the courts and seeing 
so many other people's stories obviously all feeds into this book that's about so many of us and so many people can relate to. Yeah, I think actually now that I think about it, from my perspective, what I try and do with these books is I'm only writing about them because I want to critique the system and it's almost like a necessary byproduct that my story happens to have to go in there because I just don't – I find it as a reader difficult to trust a lot of issues-based writing if I can't see clearly the lens through which I am being presented information. And so this idea that you can sort of be an objective, quote marks, journalist, um, particularly for anything even close to sort of long form, I think is is a farce. Um, And so it's interesting to me that, and I completely understand why my books are sort of consumed and read and sold as memoir books Um, and it means a lot to me that people um, connect with that part of my writing it's like when I come to a topic I want to explore I never think first of all that it's about me and my story yeah absolutely wow (laughs) I was going to ask another question first but Caitlin um you had a question on vulnerability, which I think probably fits a little bit better with where we are in the conversation right now. (laughs) All right. Well, I'll skip ahead then. Um, Olivia O'Flynn from Talking Words podcast um, put something really lovely on Instagram about beauty. She said um, that your vulnerability, Brie, is your superpower. Um, So we would love to ask you about that and how you think that affects you as a public figure do you ever regret sharing some of these vulnerabilities with us hmm I wouldn't say regret because um I feel like I have evidence that shows that what I did sacrifice was worth it because of outcomes like for eggshell scale the outcomes was individual just the number of individual reader responses that like demonstrated to me that huge impact that book had on so many individual people's lives and then also obviously the fact that it gave me that platform from which I could do the advocacy um but so no I don't regret it um and but I do it does it it is taxing it comes with a um I think a relatively unique cost I think that um part of the reason my sort of anxieties when I was touring Eggshell Skull um, sort of flared up to the point that, um, you know, a lot of the struggles that I document in beauty even ever happened were because, like, nobody was more surprised than I by the um, very quick success of Eggshell Skull, and I definitely just was not anticipating that, was not used to it, didn't really know how to handle it. Um and so, obviously, I wouldn't have written something like Beauty if I regretted the vulnerability that is in Eggshell Skull. Um, Very good point. <laughs> yeah, but but it is, I just don't, yeah, it's kind of like my previous answer where, like, uh, I don't think, you know, as a, I just try and think about what I like reading and the voices whose books I sort of trust or respect um, and I just find it very difficult to engage with issues based nonfiction where I can't see the author's voice and perspective mm. clearly because then I don't know whether or not I can trust their framing and their lens or their research for that matter. Um, and so I almost don't feel like it's an option if I want to keep um, asking the particular questions that I'm asking. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it, it is, is taxing <laughs> in a bit of a weird way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is there anything you do um, to sort of as like a self-care when you're, you know, going through those times when you're talking about these things, when you're you're about to to obviously do tours and events for for beauty and go over a lot of this stuff again? Is there anything you do to sort of look after your mental health during those times? Um, Definitely two things. The first is that I'm always, by the time one book is actually out so like for beauty it's literally today I'm 
way, way like tits deep in the next project. Um, <laughs> because that's the only way I know that I won't get too caught up in like any sort of bad reviews or if I feel like I botched an interview or, um, you know, someone was mean to me on TV, like whatever it is, the only way I just know myself and how work oriented I am. And the only way I can sort of mitigate stress around one project is to know for sure that I'm already sort of, you know, like Rolling Stone moved on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and the other thing too, is that I'm actually like, Yes, um, eggshell skull and now beauty contain a lot of um, personal information, but I actually don't really um, – something I'm very careful to do is to not do much at all personal or life writing anywhere else apart from in a book format, which is, from my perspective, pretty much the one sort of – artistic or intellectual expression where I have almost complete control and can decide on like just sheer volumes of context within which to reveal certain experiences. And so in terms of being vulnerable and sharing information, I really do believe a book is sort of one of the most empowering ways someone could go about doing that. Mm. I kind of love that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because um, yeah, it's like one thing. I mean, that's something that people always say about a book is that, like, you can't change it once it's been published, generally. Um, <laughs> like, I constantly it's get, like it's, not constantly, it's but frequently get um, requests to do writing, like, for internet, um, you know, like, online media or, or, yeah. or even print but short form. And often people think that because I have made certain disclosures in my books that I must therefore be comfortable just making disclosures about my life everywhere all the time. Um, Whereas for me, everything everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas (laughs) for me, like that line is really super clear actually. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something that fascinates me in particular as a perfectionist, um, but we ask a lot of authors on this podcast, um, when your debut is so successful and so, like you said, took you by surprise in how successful it was, does that ever make you afraid to start writing again? Did you have any struggles getting back into it after Eggshell Skull? I definitely knew that I would that when Eggshell Skull came out and it, and it did relatively well, um, I knew that I would then need to write essays and that I would then write fiction. Because for me, um, how do I describe this? It's like the only way to sort of beat that anxiety about like second album jitters or like follow up, whatever you <laughs> want to call it. Second book syndrome. Yeah, yeah, whatever that, yeah, like whatever that thing is, um, is to shift formats. So it's sort of, for me, it's kind of like completely resetting your palette. It's almost like, you know, a painter turning to sculpture. Um, and so, like, I really deliberately picked a different format um, and approached the project in a different way so that I wouldn't have so any sort of separate. Yeah, and, like, so that they're not really actually comparable. Um, And obviously they're both sort of issues-based life writing, I suppose. But from my perspective, there's a huge difference between something like Eggshell Skull, like memoir, narrative, nonfiction, which is in a lot of ways actually kind of shaped like a novel or a TV series where there has to be a kind of through line and um, and kind of almost there are characters, even though they're real, you know, and and you have Mm. to balance your plot and dialogue and all that whereas to my mind beauty is much more um and I always wanted it to be much more almost sort of philosophical criticism um reflective um and shorter yeah absolutely and will you um you mentioned just briefly before the sister essay brains I presume that that will focus more on your work and perfectionism and and that sort of thing yeah so hopefully brains will be that this same sort of size and format I really love this size and format 
as both a reader and a writer. Um, I've always loved the quarterly essays, like this sort of 20 to 25,000 word mark, I think gives writers enough space to get to the bottom of a topic, but sort of forces them to sort of stab cleanly at something rather than just sort of faffing around with it. Um, (laughs) And also it can give you, it has the added benefit of potentially allowing an author a much shorter um, publication turnaround time. So in the future, maybe I would hope like, so for example, this is kind of a newish thing for Alan and Umwin. Like I would hope that other in particular young and emerging writers might feel like maybe they can write something that's 20 or 25,000 words. That's much more sort of responsive to things that are happening because you don't have that huge lag or just this sort of immensity of like pressure and expectation of a full length book. But anyway, brains next year, um, hopefully, uh, my sort of unofficial term for these are the apex essays um, because I'm interested in asking what the extreme of something looks like and what our human sort of inevitable failure to live up to that extreme tells us about ourselves. So for brains in particular, I want to look at why this one very sort of narrow idea of academic intelligence is sort of has so consistently been held up to be sort of one of the like supreme demonstrations of brains Um, and a friend of mine was recently named a Rhodes Scholar so I've gone over and visited him at Oxford and taken a tour of Rhodes House and I'm starting to do a lot of research on the Rhodes Must Fall movement and just about different types of intelligence and different types of learning and how this stuff is all connected with issues of class and gender and race and and what academia even sort of is and looks like in the 21st century and why we still sort of hold that up as as one of the um yeah apexes of what we consider to be intelligence that's gonna be amazing that sounds so interesting (laughs) i i as someone who grew up in a house with you know, one parent who was more academic and, you know, worked at a university um, as a, like, in admin. And then my other parent was, you know, always said that he wasn't smart, didn't finish high school, but had this, what I consider amazing, like, entrepreneurial mindset to be able to start businesses and to sort of know what works and have, like, those street smarts almost. You know, it really used to hurt me as a child to hear, you know, my dad say, I'm not smart or I'm not good enough because for him, he'd always thought that because academia and being um, intellectual in that respect had always to him been, been like you say, one of those apexes of what we, we should aim to be. So, yeah, yeah. that will be fascinating. Um I just want to say, too, I I think our listeners will find this interesting. There's um, something that I found out about in the UK and very excited to to have supported. Um, There's a a group um, or like a group Kickstarter project called The Pound Project, and it's basically short form essays, um, but it's based on the Kickstarter format of like they only print on demand the number of backers that they get. Um, So... Um, Emma Gannon. Pandora Sykes didn't did one of them, didn't she? Yes, she yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. So um, the next one, which I'm very excited to get, is called Sabotage by Emma Gannon, um, and that is all about our relationship with self sabotage, why we succumb to it, procrastination, jealousy, all that sort of stuff that I'm sure we've all dealt with. Um, and that, you know, it starts that the electronic version is just one pound and you can pledge more and get different benefits and stuff. But I love that there are more, that is more of that short form, but long enough that you get a meaty look at the issue, but it's also a bit more responsive to what's happening in the world now. And I think that's a great way forward for publishers and, I love that this is like an indie startup doing this too in in the UK. So I hope I hope that we see more of that um, from for, for other writers as well. Yeah, that sounds so cool. Oh, cool. All right, <laughs> um, moving along. Um, Bree, this year you successfully campaigned for the Queensland government to remove the mistake of fact defence from rape laws. Um, can you tell us a bit about that and also whether there are any other laws that you specifically want to address? 
Uh, yeah, so I'll just um, clarify for the record that mm-hmm. what we got was um, we got the issue of the mistake of fact excuse referred to the Law Reform Commission for them to review it. Okay. Um, which was what we'd always been fighting for um, because that's just sort of the necessary process for any um, – so criminal law in Australia is legislated by state and territory and mm-hmm. at any time really where there are sort of socially contentious areas of law, like i.e. consent, bingo, um, it's not – it's sort of the generally accepted way – that the government will refer an area of law to that state's law reform commission. And the law reform commission then undergoes an inquiry process where all the different um, stakeholders, like individuals, organisations, official bodies, sort of write in what their ideas are. Um, And the law reform commission um, takes its time and then presents recommendations to government. And it's normally expected that those recommendations will be followed. Um, And so we were campaigning to get Queensland's consent laws and the mistake of fact sort of excuse slash defence referred. Um, And I started that process in pretty much June last year um, when I realised Eggshell Skull was going well-ish. And I just wrote to my local member and said, this sucks, what do we do? Um, And she sort of gave me some tips for next steps. um, And then it just turned into more and more Letters, phone calls, like on the record, off the record, meetings, blah, 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 research, article after article published by me, helping other people write stuff, just basically being a mosquito in the ear of the Attorney General. (laughs) Um, We had letter writing days and and stuff, um, just really being like the only power I had was – I had a lot of privilege, obviously, because I'm um, a lawyer and have – I had was the ability to be incredibly annoying um and so I we just didn't let up um we my um colleague in research professor Jonathan Crow who's now at Bond University but taught me when I was at the University of Queensland um we co-authored this huge research report and then we translated it into plain English and made it this like publicly available website so that the people who were actually affected by these laws had a chance of sort of reading about them and understanding them Um, because that's something I'm really passionate about and sort of easily frustrated by is how needlessly opaque so much of the legal industry is um, because people want to protect their prestigious positions that make them a lot of money. Um, Yeah, and we just campaigned and campaigned and then we got the referral on Tuesday the 9th of July. Um, I've co-authored two submissions in the sort of um, invitation-only preliminary round to the commission, and I think the commission will open for public submissions in sort of November, December. And the current timeline is that they need to make a report to the Queensland government in April, and the Queensland government has pretty much committed to doing whatever the commission says they should, which is great. So that's where we're at with that. Yeah. Is is the website still live if, if our listeners want to go, um, if they if they didn't see any of those stories? Um, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's um, yep. consentlawqld.com. Some of the, um, the stories and the cases that you shared on there, um, like you say, translated into plain English, um, they're just so shocking and just so enraging. Um, so I'm, I'm, I know I am so glad and so many other people are so glad that you do the work that you do in basically bringing what, like you said, is such a complex legal thing, sometimes full of jargon, full of confusion, um, bringing it into plain English for people and actually making a change. Um, so I, if people have not seen that website and read those stories, highly recommend going in and looking that and educating yourself on, on that. It's, um, it's, it's so enraging. And I didn't even know, you know, I, we, we're, we're all from Queensland originally. I, I did not know that that was an excuse that people could bring forward in court and it's disgusting. Yeah. It's so frustrating to, see how 
much of a chasm there is between the law slash like academia slash the legal profession and the public. Um, and it's just a constant um, struggle and something I take really seriously to try and sort of bridge those two worlds. Um, because, you know, a lot of old establishment people in the law like using this um, sort of inaccessible language and often these um, really alienating behaviours and attitudes, to be honest. Um, and it's just so disheartening to see that a lot of the um, – a lot of people who are more likely to find themselves – targeted for crimes in particular sex crimes already exist in like marginalized spaces or at intersections of experience and then those are the exact same people who are who find it hardest to navigate our legal system and so you kind of get this double fuck um and yeah i i i mean i just hope that what we were able to do is like you know at least one little step forward in in that regard absolutely yeah um i believe that some other parts of your advocacy work have also involved speaking with the police um about how they should improve their treatment of victims um that's something that you go into in the book as well the failings there of the police are you starting to see some genuine changes in that respect um, the things I've done, uh, like I got invited to go and give a talk at QP at uh, Queensland Police Service headquarters in Brisbane. Um, I've had a couple of meetings with the policy advisor to the Minister for Police and Corrective Services. Um, something I'm, I don't take like credit for this, but something that does give me hope is that in the Minister for Women's latest um, sort of, I guess, plan of attack for dealing with sex crime in Queensland. She specifically outlined steps that they planned on taking for um, encouraging a more victim-focused response from the police service. And that was after they went through this huge process of asking for the public to make submissions via these, like, um, survey portals, and, and they heard feedback from people in the sector and people like me, um, where I think they the overwhelming response to the Minister for Women was like, well, the police are where most of this sort of frontline work starts happening um, and the police are responsible for a huge amount of influence because we know that depending on how somebody is treated by the first people they disclose to, that has a huge effect on whether or not they want to proceed with their matters but also just how they feel about themselves um, and how they feel about what was done to them. And that's before you even start looking at sort of case attrition data and stuff. So, um, oh, somebody has birds. That's so cute. Yes, I think that's me. <laughs> um, I was going to say, so, it's not me this time, Caitlin. I don't have birds anymore. Um, so I guess what I'm really happy about is that um, when I started campaigning at all, and again, I don't absolutely don't take full credit for this stuff, but um, – from the beginning, um, the language I tried to always use was was coming back to this idea that for the for the survivor, there are three steps, that it's police and then prosecution and then maybe court, like where actual mm. legislation comes into play, really. Um, because something that's really sort of disheartening is that a lot of average um Australians, like non-legal professionals, don't even um, are not given the opportunity to properly understand, for example, the distinction between the police service and the prosecutors. You know that those are actually two completely different departments with different staff, with different types of training and different attitudes and resources and processes. Um, and so, something I always did from the beginning and when I spoke publicly and when we did letters was talk about the, the issues that were specific to each of those three steps. Um, and it's been really good to then see the Minister for Women, um, yeah, specifically looking at police responses because it's just so critical. And the Queensland Police Service have so much potentially to learn from um, our interstate friends, particularly in Victoria, I would say. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, 
it all hopefully sounds like there are, you know, maybe small, but hopefully some steps being taken in the right direction that can improve, you know, all of these processes and, ugh. Something that I take a lot of um, heart, I guess, what am I looking for, like, you know, makes me feel good, um, Mm -hmm. is that we got Jonathan Crow and I, um, the guy who co-authored that research with me that was formed the basis for the website, um, we got contacted by a young woman who said that it wasn't until she read about all of those cases in which complainants froze you know, um, after being subject to unwanted sexual attention or action, that she realised, like, how common the freeze response is and that it just explained so much about why she had been feeling so guilty and confused about why she froze when something happened to her. Um, And that was a real wake-up call for Jonathan and I to realise, I think, um, well, I know he and I have spoken about it, that um, the the way you go about advocacy is about the journey as well as the goal. So like Mm. for us making sure that we always centered the survivor's experience and talked about why certain survivor responses were just so common and not at all their fault and like should be spoken about because they're so normal um, that all of that stuff, regardless of what the final outcome was, which obviously was the referral. So that's awesome. But regardless of that outcome, I do believe that just running such a sustained and evidence-based compassionate campaign also did good, like, in the yeah. in the interim. Like, that's something I have faith in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That, you know, every part of it is hopefully, you know, can help people and can make good changes even thankfully the bigger higher up legal things are are happening which is wonderful but you know if a few people read that and learned a bit more and educated themselves then that's also a wonderful a wonderful thing and stopped feeling any guilt that they were feeling or you know just knew that what they were experiencing wasn't just them I think that that can be so helpful for people just to know that they're not alone yeah absolutely yeah um, Brie, can you tell us a little bit more about some of your new writing projects? You mentioned before that you might work on some fiction and I think you're also working on your master's. So how's all that going? Can you tell us anything? Yeah, so the master's is like pretty much due in December. So I am shooting oh, wow. my pants. Um, <laughs> but the master's is in creative writing and it's like practice-led research. So beauty is actually um, sort of three quarters of it. Um, oh. Wrote beauty. <laughs> in the, yeah. So I wrote beauty um, very much like last year in that first half of my MPhil. Um, and very much in that sort of framework of the masters was also where I developed the plan for brains because they are sort of companion texts in my mind. Um, So yeah, brains and beauty and brains and the MPhil are kind of all bundled up together. Um, And I have started working on my fiction, but I don't think it will be ready for another year or two um, because Mm. it's big and unruly um (laughs) and very it's just a completely new different challenge like it doesn't even obviously it's writing but it just doesn't even feel the same like it's I've just had to find all these ways to sort of trick myself into not trick myself but like I've found myself making a huge amount of the book like sort of based on research that I've done so that I can use sort of techniques for world building that I kind of already know how to do, whereas this world is, like, completely of my imagination. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's just, yeah, it's just so completely different. Like, ideally, though, Beauty 2019, Brains 2020, hopefully maybe Novel 2021. Oh, well, good luck. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks. I need it. Not, yeah. <laughs> Because you you do so much, you know, writing work and also people need to follow your Instagram because, like, 
yes, I low-key stalk you on there, but you genuinely, like, I love your captions. They, yeah, your, and your book recommendations as well um, as a former bookseller and, you know, as a writer, you you are on point with all your recommendations. And, you know, at this point also, I will just buy any book that you tell me to read because <laughs> I just trust your oh, recommendations. <laughs> Um, with that in mind, where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so um, I guess my kind of website is brie-lee.com. Um, Instagram is at brie.e.lee. Twitter is like, I think, brie underscore lee underscore writer. Um, Facebook is brie.lee.writer. Yeah, that's it. But also you can just Google me and it's all there. Yeah. Yes, and beauty is in stores now. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone hasn't read Eggshell Skull, then like, what are you even waiting for? Hurry up! And read it. <laughs> also in um, stores now. <laughs> yeah. Do you think? Um, do you think people need to have read Eggshell Skull to um, read Beauty, or can they? Uh, sort not of at all. Read yeah, no. no, no. Yeah, totally not a sequel in that sense. No. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you again so much, Brie, for joining us. Um, what a interesting and wonderful chat. Um, so hopefully I will be everyone for days. Like, yes, oh. you will. Um, <laughs> so hopefully everyone has enjoyed this interview and can run out and get copies of your book. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. No really great questions. It's been a pleasure. Oh, oh, thank my you. God. <laughs> that was my main worry. I was like, oh, my God, is she going to think my questions are okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Right. Thank you so much, Bree, and good luck with your writing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Better Words. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review on iTunes. It really would mean the world to us. And you can also find us at our website, betterwordspodcast.com and on social media at betterwordspod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye. Bye.